from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson joins us to talk about science, from his favorite stargazing memory to how to get adults to better understand it. Then we'll learn how a local group of artists are buying foreclosed city properties to create live-work spaces. We're making these spaces so we can serve the community live and work. So what we're saying is the investment is also an economic investment to put money into these communities. Plus, we'll look at an exhibit at the Museum of Wisconsin Art, celebrating new and emerging Wisconsin artists. Each artist has a unique and strong voice, but I think what ties them together is their simple humanity. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Neil deGrasse Tyson has many titles, but he's probably best known as your personal astrophysicist. You may have seen him as a guest on various news or late-night TV shows, explaining the science we come across in daily life. Tyson is also an author, podcast host, and heads the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. But no matter the role he takes on from day to day, they all share one thing in common, popularizing science by making it accessible and exciting. One of the ways he's doing this in Milwaukee is with his upcoming lecture called An Astrophysicist Goes to the Movies, the sequel. Ahead of that, he joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome to Lake Effect. It's an honor to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you. And I like the name, Lake Effect. Is that Does that refer to the source of moisture that creates snow in the winter? Yes. And right in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we're right by Lake Michigan here. So we thought it was an appropriate name. <laughs> there it is. I love it. I love the meteorological uh, innuendo there. So it's good. Yeah. Well, and of course, while I have you and speaking of all things science, I want to start off with the concept of scientific literacy. What is it and how do you think we can foster this not only in young children, but as adults as well? Yeah, I, uh, contrary to what many people think of me, I generally focus on adults rather than on children. Children are born curious. They're scientists, basically, uh, minus the laws of physics and nature that they have yet to learn. They are as inquisitive as any adult scientist is about the natural world. So I, I, I don't actually worry about them. I worry about the adults who are teaching them <laughs> later on. And I'd worry about what happens when you emerge uh, into the ranks of what we would call educated uh, citizens of the world. What happens is upon graduation, people ossify in whatever, but no matter what point you graduate, is it high school or is it college or graduate school? Typically, people ossify right at the point when they graduated. And they, uh, I've stereotyped this, but imagine people run down the steps, toss their books in the air and said, school's out. You know, there's even an Alice Cooper song that anthemically <laughs> celebrates, you know, school's out for summer, school's out forever. And it's like, really? You, you're, you're glad there's no more school? So that means there's a failure in the educational system to make it such that you are glad when you no longer have to learn. And I, so that's a first, let's just start there. More specifically about science, we're taught just what science knows, 
in our classes, you get this fat textbook and, and you got to memorize the boldface words. That's the vocabulary. And you, and you take the test and then you move on. And at no time are we really taught what science is or how and why it works. That's what's missing. Is that the start of the disconnect? So, you know, school's out. And then as adults, there's, you know, I guess maybe only a matter of time but before that failure and disconnect starts where we seem to forever be facing, especially in the past few years with the pandemic, where people don't agree what is science, when, how it works, what's an objective truth? What does it mean to be convinced of something? You know, do you think this is where the failure starts is when we think, oh, we don't yes. need this knowledge anymore. Let me carry well, on. Well, not only do, you, do they think they don't need it, but when they did learn the science, they didn't learn science the way science is actually practiced, which is on the frontier. It's a messy, bloody, well, not bloody, but it's, it's a messy, confused frontier because you don't know what's going to come down the pipe. And so if someone does some research and they get a result, somebody else doesn't. And the press runs to it, by the way. Someone else gets another result that's different and they report on that. And then the public thinks the scientists don't know what we're doing when they're being exposed to the, the very frontier where objective truths are being sifted and established. And so if the CDC gives, holding aside political issues or, or communication challenges that they had, uh, if the CDC announces something based on research one month, and then they announce something different or improved or slightly altered, you can't say, well, I don't know what to believe then, you know, you can't, the, because that if you say that, it means you don't know how science works. Science is an ever progressing approach towards an objective truth, which when you get multiple studies that agree, and I'm not talking about opinions here, I'm talking about results of data and observations and experiment. When they agree, then we say, we got a new truth, put it in the books and let's keep moving forward. And in the era of experimental science, that's how we built civilization to deal with it. And don't tell me I don't trust science. Oh, wait a minute. I got a call on my smartphone from someone 4,000 miles away. Oh, and let me find out what the shortest distance is to grandma's house in traffic on my smartphone. Oh, but I don't trust science. Really? Really? So speaking of... I'm to get all excited about that, but that's my answer. No, it's, it's a good thing to get excited about. And a lot of things have influenced you in your life before you became known as, you know, our personal astrophysicist. And one big component of that was studying under Carl Sagan. And he was a professor of astronomy at Cornell when you first met him. And one of your many takeaways from learning from Carl was, quote, if I'm ever as remotely as famous as Carl Sagan, I'll treat the next generation of scientists the way he has treated me. So can you share some of those tenets you've developed over your career based on this promise you made to yourself? Yeah, so uh, Carl Sagan was not a mentor to me in the traditional sense we might think of that word. It's possible to mentor someone even if you never interact with them, just by example, all right? And in Carl Sagan, I, by the way, just to be clear, I was probably in his presence maybe six times in my life, okay? So it's mostly just the impact someone can have when there's this sort of resonance between your goals and the wisdom that they share with you. And so he spent time with me when I was 17 years old. He didn't know me from anything. I'd applied to Cornell, had not decided whether I would attend. And the admissions office sent him my application, which was dripping with the universe. And they said, maybe this is somebody. So he, he invited me up. And I went there. I said, my gosh, how do you do what? what? And he, he handed me a book that he wrote and signed it. 
and drove me and drove me at the end of the day, drove me back to the bus station is upstate New York it began to snow. This was in December. And he said, you know, if it's, if the bus can't get through if this, here's my home number, call me, spend the night with my family, leave tomorrow. I was like, what? And I said, oh my gosh, he's investing in the future in me. So I kind of, like I said, if I'm ever that famous, I remember thinking this at the time, I will give attention to the next generation of students who want to do what I'm doing. I will give them the attention above all else. So I, I joke about this. I'd be on the, on the phone and a student knocks on the door of my office. And I say, Barack, I got to get back to you. I got a student. <laughs> I'll call you later. I got students I got to deal with here. So it, it's infused almost every aspect of my uh, pedagogical hat wearing. When I separate from being a scientist, I count myself among the ranks of educators. And that's in my portfolio, for sure. Do you consider being an educator as one of your key priorities? Would you say if this all went away, public speaking, being the people's astrophysicist, would teaching still be plenty to fulfill you? Well, so no, it's I, I'm a little more complicated than that. If I have my choice, I would actually just stay in the lab. And you would never know I even existed. And in fact, I look forward to the day where other people, many more people, a lot are there now, uh, join this landscape of science education. If you look on social media, there are many people who have entire YouTube channels give, and, and Instagram streams uh, devoted to doing cool science things at home, uh, learning about science. So there's a swell in the ranks of those who are active in, in these efforts. So I, what I want to do is have that be large enough so that I can tiptoe backwards, exit the back door, go to the Bahamas, and you won't even know I left. <laughs> and so I'm happy to have done my contributed the bit that I have, but it can't just be all needle all the time. Then my efforts will have failed if people learning science requires that I be a part of that equation. Then I, I then I didn't it didn't work. And just the way Carl tried to make sure he didn't have to be part of that equation. All right. If you provided you pass the torch and keep it going. So no, and I don't need to be remembered for any of that. Just just keep moving forward. It's not about me. It's about you. So let's say you had to move out of the sciences and being in the lab wasn't an option and you had to pick a job in the humanities. What field would you choose and why? Oh, yeah. I, yeah great. Thanks for that question. Uh, does it matter if I have talent in that? <laughs> no. Let's just say dream job that's okay, not okay, related, whatever. Yeah. Thanks for that. For that. <laughs> um, I think I would be a songwriter for Broadway musicals. That's what I, I love. love that. I, I love musicals, uh, even the corny ones. You know, uh, two people meet each other and they fall in love, and they, there's a moment where they can no longer express it in words, so they have to sing a song. I remember as a kid saying. That's stupid. If you just feel that way, why sing a song? Why are you wasting my time? I remember it as a kid, but then I realized, oh my gosh, a song reaches deeper into our state of emotion and our into our feelings. It's, songs go beyond words in ways that affect us viscerally. And so as I became more and more facile with the language, with words, with, with communication, really, I said to myself, I want to participate in that exercise. And I want to write the simple song that uh, conveys not only ideas, but emotions and advances the plot. And so, yeah, so that would that's what I would be. I love that answer. One more question for you in the time I have. 
Speaking of visceral memories, do you have a favorite stargazing memory or any other kind of related scientific memory? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So in the old days, because that's how old I am, we would go on pilgrimages to mountaintops to the telescopes. Okay. The theorists would stay at home on their computers. I was a little bit of both. So I would go to mountaintops and they're far away. I went to mountains in the Andes Mountains of Chile for my PhD thesis. And you're there and you and you takes a day or two, do you convert and you live nocturnally. So your day is the night. Your day begins at sunset. All right. And I'm there and I'd be listening to music, uh, typically some bombastic classical bit. And uh, as the morning draws near, that you, it's a full night of observing and data gathering, I would time it so that like the final chords of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony would be playing as the dome uh, slit closed. And, would go, and then I'd walk out and I'd see dawn. Those are, those are, you can't, you can't, you have to feel that and experience it to real. It's almost a spiritual encounter with the cosmos when you have that. So the music, the data, the science, the sky, the mountaintop, it's all there. Yeah. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I'm coming to Milwaukee. I'm going to be there. Yes, I'm looking, looking forward to that. Talking about movies. I love movies and talking about science in the movies. The science they get right and also the science they get wrong. I'm going to call that out. <laughs> and not just movies that are science fiction. It's all. Oh, that's right. Yeah. In fact, most of the movies are, are not science fiction movies. Uh, talk about uh, The Wizard of Oz, talk about A Bug's Life. Uh, there's some interesting films in there that you never knew had some science. And that's what I'm for to show you. <laughs> Show you how that went down. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to having you. Thanks for having me, then. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist, author, podcast host, and head of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. He'll be at the Pabst in Milwaukee on February 24th for his all-new lecture called An Astrophysicist Goes to the Movies, the sequel. Tyson spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WisPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, J.R., good to talk to you. You too, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. So it's another week of Wisconsin politics with the primary election tomorrow, actually. The state has a crucial state Supreme Court race that could really tip the ideological balance of the court. It's a nonpartisan race, so none of the candidates have an R or a D next to their names, but they have partisan leanings and are supported by conservatives or liberals. Who are the political insiders thinking have the best chances in the April general election and why? So... The general consensus has been that Milwaukee County Circuit Court Judge Janet Proce, which is probably the best bet to make it through, the question is who comes with her. Now, bear in mind, this is a four-person primary. There's no liberal primary or conservative primary. It's one pot of candidates. The top two vote-getters emerge. So you could have, in theory, two liberals or two conservatives get through. The going wisdom right now is that 
uh, per se, which gets through. She's uh, raised close to $2 million already. She spent $1.25 million of her own on TV. There's signs that the Democratic establishment's kind of coalescing around her. Uh, people like Herb Cole have endorsed her campaign. So there's a feeling that she's really got a good shot to get through. Then you have the other liberal, uh, Everett Mitchell, a Dane County Circuit Court judge, just has not had the resources to really kind of get his name out there or get up on TV, uh, communicate his message. So if you're if we have a, a 50-50 liberal conservative electorate turnout on Tuesday, there's not be much of a split, people don't think, of the liberal vote. So there's that. On the conservative side, you have uh, former Justice Daniel Kelly, uh, who was on the court after being appointed by Scott Walker. He lost his bid in 2020 for a full 10-year term. And then you have Jennifer Doro, the Waukesha County Circuit Court judge who oversaw the, the Waukesha Christmas Parade trial. Um, and looking at that dynamic... For a long time, the perception was that Doro had uh, an edge for electability. The argument was that Kelly had already lost a race one time uh, by 10 points, albeit he shared the ballot with the Democratic presidential primary at the time, so that probably impacted turnout. But he still lost by a healthy margin. Uh, there's a thought that there'd be a better shot to have a young, younger female candidate on the conservative side, especially with abortion, expected to be a big issue um, this spring. So there's an electability argument for Doro. You know, she had this buzz about her uh, from the parade trial. She was raising more money. What we're seeing, though, in the closing weeks is a real influx of cash um, helping Daniel Kelly. There's a group called Fair Courts America. Uh, it's largely funded by Dick Uline, an Illinois businessman and kind of GOP mega donor. They've put about, oh, 2.3 million-ish uh, up on TV and radio so far praising Kelly. Meanwhile, you have groups like A Better Wisconsin Together who have banded together to raise, oh, to spend about uh, 2.3 or 4 million against Doro and anti Doro ads. Now, for A Better Wisconsin Together, part of that is because they think she might be a stronger general election candidate and they want to try to, if she gets through, soften her up or maybe help Kelly get through. Uh, and there's a lot of money being spent. Now, Doro and those backing her, you know, they've spent. Uh, $700,000 on everything. Then you have also some anti-protosay, which adds about 750k. You add it all up, and we're talking like $7.7 .7 million spent already at the primary. The record Wisconsin Supreme Court race for spending was $9.8 million. We're not even through the primary yet, and we're hitting these kind of numbers. So it tells you just what's at stake in this race and just how much money is going to come in as we move toward April because of what could happen. Yeah, I know a lot of columnists are talking about this could be the most expensive Supreme Court race in Wisconsin history. I think some even said we're banding about like the most expensive judicial race in U.S. history. Yeah. I don't I don't know if we'll see. But do you expect that to really have a dent in what's usually expected to be a pretty low turnout race? It's an excellent question. All this money being put on TV, usually, you know, you're talking turnout is not very impressive for spring primaries. There isn't a whole lot to drive them. You know, a half million, 600,000 people might turn out um, maybe on Tuesday, unless there's a really supercharged electorate. That remains to be seen. So is TV, for example, the best way to reach them? That's why you see a lot of digital ads these days. You see mail pieces. They can really go at voters who regularly turn out for that February primary and try and get their message to them. So, But also, it's not just being spent because of the primary. It's being spent because of the general election. Again, like with Porta Sawich, if she gets through as expected— 
why wait until after Tuesday to start running ads against her if you're a conservative? I mean, why not start now? Uh, if Dora were to get through, why not start now in trying to define her? It's really an effort by everybody to, to find the people involved and kind of start laying down markers out of that April election when so much is at stake. Well, and of course, abortion is a big issue that the state Supreme Court will be taking up after the election of a new justice. It'll decide a lawsuit about whether the like, 1849 law that bans abortion in almost all circumstances is enforceable. Do you see that as an issue that's really mobilizing voters in what's, you know, in this in this election? Oh, it's interesting to watch how heavily Portisay, which is leaning into that issue. So remember, that lawsuit is still at Dane County Circuit Court. Uh, we haven't really seen any signs of a decision coming anytime soon. But once one comes down, you can be sure there's going to be an appeal uh, and eventually go to the state Supreme Court, probably after the new justice is seated, you know, sometime in late summer. Uh, say which is leaning into that issue because she sees it as something that motivates people. Now, there's, I've had people warn there's got to be a kind of a walking a tightrope sometimes with this because remember the 2019 Supreme Court race, Brian Hagedorn, uh, the conservative candidate at the time, uh, he had association with a, a private school that, you know, banned, I believe, a gay staff member, something like that. And there was a thought that liberals went too far in attacking Hagedorn over that association it made him sympathetic to conservatives who then rallied to his side and helped him get over the top. So if you're attacking Doro or Kelly, if they get through, for their personal religious beliefs, that maybe would turn off voters. So you got to use the issue the right way is what I'm saying, according to people I talk to. And so for Potosewicz, she's saying, I support Owen's right to choose. They're leading into that issue and making clear that, you know, if you're somebody who's a voter who's motivated by abortion, who's motivated by it is an unhappiness over the U.S. Supreme Court overturning that right to an abortion, then she's your candidate, essentially. You know, some of these judges are getting criticized for what could be interpreted as lenient sentences on the bench, specifically conservative candidate Jennifer Doro and um, now recently liberal candidate Janet Protasiewicz. And, and Doro is getting criticized for her time as a criminal defense attorney, which is, in fact, a position guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment to the yep. Constitution. Do you see this as, as problematic, or do you see this as impacting voters? Just about every judge in Wisconsin who sits in a criminal court has got at least one or two cases in his or her background that would be good fodder for a TV ad in a Supreme Court race. It's just a fact of life. You know, you, you agree to plea deals, um, things like that. Uh, it's just, it's... It's tough. So that's one argument you're not now hearing from Daniel Kelly's kind of supporters is that when it comes to the soft on crime tag, he's a quote unquote cleaner candidate than Doro is because he doesn't have those things in his background. You know, he only served in the Supreme Court. He wasn't a circuit court judge or on the appeals court. There's one case where he represented some people as a private attorney that, you know, can be fodder for a, an ad, but he doesn't have these cases of, you know, like Proto which now getting dinged for I think several people accused of child rape or something like that, not given probation, not uh, prison time. He doesn't have those things. Making the argument of if this is going to be a crime-driven election, then maybe he has an advantage over Doro. If it's Doro versus Protosewicz, I can guarantee you, you're going to see a ton of ads um, this spring about cases they handled and how they handled them. Uh, they'll get, it'll be a rather negative campaign going forward. All right. Another big election for southeastern Wisconsin is the primary and the special election for the 8th Senate District. It's important to note this is a partisan primary, so it's to mm -hmm. replace Republican Alberta Darling. 
Democratic candidate jo Jody Sinekin is running uncontested, but there are three Republicans on the ballot, including Representative Janelle Branchin, who's been a vocal election denier and has been endorsed by former President Trump. Other candidates are Representative Dan Nodal of Germantown and Fiendsville President Van Mobley. What can you tell us about the latest on that race? You are seeing an interesting dynamic play out where Republicans and Democrats believe that Janelle Branchin is the weakest of the three Republicans. And there's an effort by Republicans to maybe prevent her from getting through and by Democrats to elevate her in that primary. Now, let's big picture of this seat. This is not a swing seat. This is a 55% Republican seat. However, um, in the fall in the governor's race, Tim Michael has got about 51.5%. Uh, in that race, it was viewed that abortion was something that hurt Michaels with suburban voters. Some other issues didn't help him with those voters as well. So the thought is that if you have the right conditions, you can maybe make this race swingy, even competitive. And Democrats got a great recruit in Jody Havasinikin. She's got a great background. Our family owns a manufacturing facility, some of our textile facility of some sort. She's an environmental lawyer. She's got, been raising really good money, in fact, outraising the entire Republican field by herself. And if abortion is going to be an issue in the spring, which we all expect it will be, having a professional female candidate, you know, a, a professional in terms of like something in a professional background, suburban female candidate speaking to suburban professional uh, voters is probably a good thing on the abortion issue, right? So there's a lot of good stuff going for her. But even with all that happening, this is not a swing seat. It's a Republican one. So is that by itself enough, that great profile, the great numbers enough, or does she need the right candidate to get through the primary to have a chance to win? Um, the arguments we made that Janelle Branchin uh, would be the kind of voter or candidate who would turn off those suburban voters. Uh, Jody's ads, for example, have elevated Branchin's position on abortion, that she's just too extreme, too conservative. And there's a reason for that. They're trying to appeal to, like, Primary, Republican primary voters and saying, here's your real conservative. This is the one you should really be paying attention to. Um, she's the, you know, the one you should be supporting if you want the real deal. Um, now, Trump's endorsement of Branchin is interesting. Uh, it kind of came late. I don't know if it's enough to really get out in the ether for voters to kind of sink in, but that might be more an issue for her in the, the general election if she gets through. But we're also seeing some groups, along with Republicans, spending money either to help Knodel or oppose Branchin. So Branchin's got basically that, that passion of the Trump part of the base in that district, the former president's endorsement, not a whole lot of money. There's not much being spent on her behalf. So are those things enough to overcome that financial advantage? Because, well, you know, Canola's got stuff going for him, but also Van Mobley's been up on TV. He put 100000 bucks on money in the campaign, and he's on TV. He's communicating to voters. So it's really going to be interesting to watch. That, that, that primary is totally a toss-up right now. All right. Well, thanks for helping us unpack the political news, JR. And thanks for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. That was JR Ross of WizPolitics.com speaking with me, WUWM's Mayan Silver. Listen for our segments every Monday with an extended segment on Lake Effect. And check out the Capital Notes podcast wherever you get your podcasts. <music>
where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. The Museum of Wisconsin Art is celebrating 10 years at its West Bend location. We'll hear from a couple of the emerging Wisconsin artists featured in its latest exhibition. But first, we'll learn about HomeWorks Bronzeville and how it's fighting gentrification by creating live workspaces for artists. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Milwaukee has the second largest home ownership gap between black and white families in the country. According to the Wisconsin Policy Forum, last year, only a quarter of black families owned their homes, compared to 55% of white families. And in neighborhoods like Bronzeville, residents are seeing increased gentrification making it hard to remain in the neighborhood. But a group of artists in Milwaukee want to change that. Their project is called Homeworks Bronzeville. The group has purchased foreclosed city-owned properties in the area, and they're trying to convert a building into an artist live and work space. Lake Effect's Mallory Chang visits the construction site to learn more. It's a chilly February afternoon in Wisconsin. I'm with Nolan Gray. He's a Milwaukee-based developer who buys properties all over the city to rehab them, resell them, or to rent out. And we're standing in a gutted duplex in Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood. If you look through here, you see the more wider door openings, and that's because these are pocket doors. So the door will slide into the pocket once we frame the, the additional part out. But uh. A lot of these properties have those old radiators. They're like 200 to 300 pounds each. It's going to be an open layout. So Last year, the city of Milwaukee owned this foreclosed building. That is, until a group of artists decided to purchase it to create a live-work space. They're calling the project Homeworks Bronzeville. Over the summer, I chatted with the co-developers, Lexi S. Brunson and Mikhail Floyd Pruitt. We sat on the porch of a building they bought from the city and redeveloped in 2019. Currently, a local artist, Vidal Hill, lives and works in the space. Starting off with Vidal, we kind of call him a guinea pig. Um, (laughs) He was the first one to have a crack at it. He went through the process of the full development, cultivating it, programming it, and now he has taken on full ownership of the property. And so with that, that means he is an anchor in the community. He cannot be displaced at this time. We're building like actual physical improvements, but also like the social capital, the political capital, the creative capital, the communal capital, like all of these things that make you want to be at a place or make you want to live somewhere. Ownership is one of the main aspects to trying to halt some of the gentrification as well. You have artists that move into an area, they start making it cool, and they price themselves out. What we're trying to do 
move into the area, make it cool, retain all of that value that we're generating because we own it, and to the best of our ability, extend that benefit to those around us. Adjacent to the new home will also be a community green space. Brunson will be the first resident of the newest live-work home, but she's been a longtime community member of the area. I did not grow up far from here. I currently live in Bronzeville, so I'm not a transplant. I'm deciding to stay, and that means a lot to me. It means that I'm going to invest into the community that brung me up, and I'm going to try to create generational wealth for my community. We're making these spaces so we can serve the community, live and work. So what we're saying is the investment is also an economic investment to put money into these communities. There are no other places like this in Milwaukee, and the developers are using their artists' perspectives to change the systemic challenges that Black creatives face in trying to buy a home. And every time we get displaced, we're rebuilding that network. We represent all of Milwaukee. People need to start looking at our issues through a different lens. That is the lens that we provide. That is part of being an artist, is looking at what you have in front of you, looking at the landscape and pulling new understanding from that or exploring a new idea. Like that's what you do in a painting practice or photography. What am I actually seeing here? And that sort of capacity to to draw more answers, more understanding out of an environment for the purpose of art is the same for community. I hope that we can just look back and see, you know, our kids looking at these spaces as their homes. That's Nolan Gray again. We're back with him in the cold Wisconsin winter. And our kids being in an environment that they feel safe in, whether it's a mixed community or a black community or whoever lives here, we want it to feel equitable, safe, and equal, you know? Homeworks Bronzeville's second live workspace is scheduled to open this summer, and the group hopes they can redevelop more spaces like this for their community. For WWM, I'm Mallory Chang. Lexi S. Brunson and Mikhail Floyd Pruitt are co-developers of Homeworks Bronzeville. Nolan Gray is a developer from Gray Development Group. They all spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood is just one of the many historic communities that have made the city what it is today. The Streets of Old Milwaukee exhibit at the Milwaukee Public Museum is a celebration of that history. Poet Richard Hederman pays homage to the exhibition, where he works as a member of the museum's education staff. This is a poem I wrote that was inspired by the Streets of Old Milwaukee Gallery. And um, something to keep in mind as I read the poem is that its uh, historical setting is largely from 1890 to 1917 when the U.S. entered World War I. And I particularly set the poem right around that time as uh, the country was becoming very concerned that we were going to enter a world war. So there are references in the poem to, uh, to war looming on the horizon and the concern over that. So this is called Streets of Old Milwaukee. It is endless, the early October dusk, smelling of smoke and lit in the flare of gaslight. The butterfly in the mason jar folds its wings as if under the weight of dust. 
and the draft horses haul their shadows back to the stables. In the alley, the black cat tilts his head in the dark, listening for a rat in the grate, a spider on the wall, or something else we may never hear. Even the films in the Nickelodeon unspool silently in black, silver, and silken gray, the actors gesturing as though signaling for help. The kite, torn by rain, hangs snagged in the wires. The streetcar reaches its vanishing point as the barber summons his final customer, beckoning with his gleaming razor. In the saloon, the cards face down upon the table enfold their cache of prophecies. The Western Union messenger leans his bicycle against the fence. The gate is locked, the dead leaves scattered. Winter is coming and so too, a war that will strew telegrams from here to the sum. Then the apothecary hoards his bottles stoppered with the vapor of poppies. The player piano will jangle over the waves. The red service banners unfurled in the square will summon the clerk, the newsboy, the schoolmaster to Ypres, the Marne and Amiens. So where then is the funeral parlor? The windows shut, the thick drapes pulled tight against the gathering dark. And where to the undertaker with his heavy gloves to lay us all to rest. Richard Hederman works on the education staff at the Milwaukee Public Museum, and he's the author of Choosing a Stone. You can find our conversation about that book at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation that you'd like to hear on the show, give our community connection line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lake effect. Coming up, we'll learn how the Museum of Wisconsin Art is celebrating its 10th anniversary. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The Museum of Wisconsin Art has had a long and winding history. It was first conceived of in 1961, with different iterations and locations over decades. But in some ways, the museum is quite young, just 10 years old. That's when the Museum of Wisconsin Art moved to its current location in West Bend. The museum is celebrating with a variety of exhibits and special guests throughout the year. Kicking things off with 10 at 10, the exhibit features 10 new and emerging Wisconsin artists, including Meg Lionel Murphy and Johanna Winters. They join me along with the museum's executive director, Lori Winters. 
Thank you all so much for being here on Lake Effect. Well, thank you for having us. So, Lori, tell us a bit about this specific exhibition. How would you describe it? Yeah, the exhibition is a celebration exhibition celebrating our 10 years in our new facility in West Bend. We call it the Mothership. We opened our new facilities. We've been around for 60 years, but we opened our new facilities in 2013. And uh, the year preceding that, 2012, we had 2,912 visitors, you know, small regional institution. Sure. Yeah. So when we finished our first year in our new facility, we had 35,000 visitors. And we thought, great, we're <laughs> off to a good start. And here we are 10 years later, a full decade later. And last year we had over 200,000 to our mothership. We now also have satellite venues in Milwaukee and Madison, and we have become the museum for the state of Wisconsin, celebrating all of Wisconsin artists and those artists which have deep roots with the state in one way or another. So we're really excited to have this kind of personal and intimate relationship with our artist. And this year, 2023, in this 10-year anniversary, we're trying to look forward. We are planning what the institution will be like for the next 10 years. And one of the things that's really important for us, and which has been the catalyst, really the seed for this exhibition, is that we are excited about working with and supporting young and emerging artists. And so 10 at 10 evolved. And our curatorial staff spent about a year. I don't think Meg and Johanna know this, but we spent about a year looking at sort of what we thought were sort of young, emerging artists. And we put the exhibition together based on that. So this is kicking off the celebration, kicking off the year. And throughout the rest of the year, we will see an, a number of different artists at different stages in their career. But there will always be an artist who we would consider sort of that fulfills that category of young and emerging. It's interesting because looking at the different artists in this exhibition, in this inaugural exhibition for the 10th anniversary, uh, the, the styles of art really vary from person to person. Meg, having seen a bit of your work, it's very colorful, really vibrant. How do you describe it? Goodness. Well, my paintings are really influenced by my personal experiences with PTSD and actually severe, severe domestic violence. And they are really hopeful. They are really colorful and vibrant and almost like a pop song. I want them to kind of lure you in with this almost childlike, dreamlike wonder and then kind of keep you there with a bit of pain and um, the reality that I feel around mental illness and hopefully allow a safe space for those that struggle to kind of reckon with their own pain by looking at the work. Your work features a lot of people, a lot of bodies, and uh, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because that's not initially what I would have thought, especially because they are so vibrant and almost playful. But when you say that, it, it becomes clear what you mean. Yeah, I, I think that the work takes place in almost, you know, this dream world where suffering transforms femme bodies into this monstrous giant size. And I like to think that their pain 
as giants must be seen, felt, and reckoned with. And there's a really big, my biggest painting ever in the show. It's 90 inches tall, 50 inches wide. And it really does, they're kind of teetering on dollhouses. So um, that are actually real that I use as props when I paint. And it's almost kind of, are they adults looking at children's toys or are they giants toppling over the landscape? And I like that juxtaposition. Now, Johanna, your work is, I would say, very different. In some ways, I would almost describe it as living art, pieces where human interaction seems kind of integral to the experience. At least that's my experience uh, with puppets and, and things of that ilk. What does that look like in an exhibition? The strategy that I've used most recently in the last, I guess, year and a half is making a series of videos about this central protagonist figure that is part puppet and and part human, I would say. I am her embodied chaperone in these videos. And um, I think that the video format can work in a gallery setting where the props and the costumes and the sculptures from the video can also be displayed alongside the the time-based work so that there's a bit of material context to the sort of storytelling that's happening through video you know, it's it's an ongoing question I have of how how to talk about these ideas that I'm thinking about through a puppet form, which is usually in the context of theater, where there's a you know produced performance that's happening live, um, and that's certainly something I'm interested in as well. And I have dipped my toe into puppetry in live performance formats, but I'm particularly interested in video as a way of kind of constructing these worlds where this protagonist can exist, and you can start to experience the kind of interiority that she's experiencing as um, a body that wants to be desired and wants to be witnessed and is perhaps grappling with feelings of isolation and lonesomeness. Now, for people who haven't seen uh, your work, haven't seen your puppets, how do you describe them? They have a very um, dry and parched surface texture. They're a little bit grotesque. I also think they're beautiful. I consider them gendered as, as female, though they often have more ambiguous anatomy. They look a little bit worn and, and weary, depending on whether they're a mask or a marionette, or in this most recent work that's in the exhibition here at um, the Museum of Wisconsin Art, they are both costume and, I guess, character, where they're worn by a human body, a mask and a sort of a, a torso bathing suit are the the key features of the costume. Given the exhibition, both of you are more emerging artists. What is it like being featured in this exhibition at this point in your career? You know, it it means so much to me to be just shown in Wisconsin. I've largely shown in New York and LA and most of my sales of my work happen there. So to be recognized and celebrated in Wisconsin, first of all, means so much to me. Um, I also had kind of a roundabout way to the art world. My 20s were spent, you know, with a lot of pain. And I think I'm emerging in my 30s as an artist. And I have a lot of story that I'm working with because of that. So I just feel really grateful to be emerging at this time in my career while living in Wisconsin in a place that I didn't think would support me as an artist to have this recognition is just, it makes me feel like I'm in the right place. For me, I feel this excitement around kind of a, what feels like a homecoming in a way. I, I first became an artist as a student in Wisconsin at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And then I lived in Green Bay for a number of years after college. And I, I taught there for a bit. And so I 
I feel like the, my work has grown so much since that undergraduate period many years ago at this point. But I, I feel like there's something kind of sacred about showing this newer work in this state where so much of my identity as an artist was formed. And I'm, I'm really excited for some of my former professors to perhaps see the show. And I mean, they, they've seen my work from the earliest days when it was probably you know, very much still figuring out what it was at that time. And I mean, I, I still am trying to figure out what it is, but yeah, I feel a sense of pride and, and gratefulness to be able to show work in a state that has felt like a second home to me. Now, Laurie, as you mentioned, this is just one of the elements of MOA's 10-year anniversary celebration. What are you looking forward to this season? Oh, I'm very excited. Yeah, listening to um, Johanna and, and Meg is really kind of sweet and wonderful. And the way they, they talk about what Wisconsin means to them and their experience. And, uh, you know, so I look forward to m- more opportunities for um, younger artists. Uh, you know, I think there's just so much potential. I was walking through the exhibition as it's going up on the walls yesterday, and I, I was just amazed at the really high level of work. And um, I was kind of struck by the humanity of the work. It's very different. And you mentioned that at the outset. Each artist has a unique and strong voice. But I think what ties them together is their simple humanity and how each artist at this younger point, at this youthful point in their career, they are searching for uh, identity. They're searching to find their place in the world. Um, They're searching through relationships or the process of aging or gender identity. And and that comes through very clearly and in a common voice. And so it makes me think that the Zoomers and Millennials have, they have a strong voice. It's a very passionate voice, but it ties us, it's a voice that ties us all together as humans. And so I think that's sort of the common thread of the exhibition, and I'm really proud of that. All right. Well, Lori, Meg, Johanna, thank you all so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Lori Winters is the executive director of the Museum of Wisconsin Art. Meg Lionel Murphy and Johanna Winters are two of the artists featured in the museum's current exhibition, 10 at 10. The exhibit will be at the museum through April 9th. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll look at how African-American history is being taught in schools today and the challenges this part of our history is facing in the classroom. Then we'll sit down at Vientiane Noodle Shop to learn about February. That's all tomorrow at noon right here on Lake Effect on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. 